Well, physical death is the one enemy of humanity that always wins. Regardless of how many medical breakthroughs our scientists make, regardless of how good we become at extending life, death claims everyone eventually. You can work out, and you should. You can eat cleaner, and you should. You can lower your cholesterol and watch your blood pressure, and you should. You can avoid taking unnecessary risks. There's all kinds of strategies that human beings have developed. Just go online, you'll find them, to try to put off what is inevitable, to extend what at least we've defined as human beings as a, quote, full life. But in the end, physical death will come for you and for me. And in the meantime, and this fascinates me, in the meantime, human beings mostly try not to talk about it. Have you noticed this? We try not to talk about the inevitable. And whenever anyone does slow down long enough to consider death and the big questions that come out of it, most people just try to deflect that conversation. And that's especially true if anybody brings up the issue of, well, what happens after we die? Like, what's next? That's considered too controversial or too religious in nature. So as a result, most of humanity just sort of stumbles blindly through life saying, I'm just not going to deal with this. It's quite an amazing thing if you think about it. Here's this giant thing that we all experience, and yet none of us wants to take the time to talk about it. Well, in his days on the earth, Jesus talked a lot about it, about death and about the afterlife. In fact, he talked about it constantly. And he acknowledged that because of sin, physical death is an enemy to us all. But for those of us who have trusted in him and him alone, it's a different kind of enemy. It's a defeated enemy. And that seems worth discussing. Wouldn't you agree? Grab your Bibles. Let's turn to John chapter 11. I feel like I should click. It doesn't make any difference. (laughs) Old habits, man. John chapter 11. Find verse 11. The big idea over the past two Sundays, I've heard from a lot of you, has been really challenging, right? This big idea that it's so difficult for us to process our feelings biblically when God doesn't respond to us in ways that we expect Him to, right? In ways that we've been taught. Well, this is how God ought to respond when we're in need. But then something in our life happens, something difficult we go through, and suddenly God's not responding like we think he should. And how do we process through that? We've been watching this very thing play out in the life of Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. Remember, they sent word to Jesus that they were in crisis. Lord, we need you. And mysteriously, there was no response. They heard nothing in return. And behind the scenes, John tells us why that's true. He says that Jesus was purposely delaying in his response to his friends. In other words, he was intentionally allowing Lazarus to die physically and intentionally putting Mary and Martha through all of this suffering and and grief that comes with watching a loved one slip away into death. That's tough, isn't it? Most shockingly to us as the readers, John tells us the, the motivation for that was what? Love. That God loved this family and that's why he delayed. And we all said, huh? That just doesn't compute with our human way of thinking. But precisely because he loved Lazarus and he loved Mary and he loved Martha, Jesus delayed in going to Bethany to help them. How can that be? 
Well, it's because God had a bigger and much more glorious plan for Lazarus in mind, something far greater than what we would consider mind-blowing, a healing. God had something bigger in mind. God had something bigger and more glorious than, than just sparing Mary and Martha from this time of suffering and grieving. Now, that's hard enough for us as readers to appreciate, but imagine being in one of their sandals actually experiencing it, how hard that would have been to just not hear anything from the one you trust in. The truth that we arrived at is this. When God's answer to our need is no or simply delayed, it's incredibly important for us in that moment to fall back on what we know biblically and not to allow our emotions to just overwhelm us. That A, God is sovereign over everything, including what you're going through, that He's always good and always loving towards His children, and we can trust that whatever His answer is to our perceived need, and isn't that true? We perceive that we have a need, but we don't see everything. We don't see all the contingencies and all the possibilities, but it's always going to be for a higher purpose how God responds to us, that it's going to be for a fuller demonstration of His glory in our lives, even if we can't see it in that moment. This is hard stuff. This is one of many, one of many things that the world simply cannot understand about the way that we worship God. The world says, well, look, if, if your God really loves you, well, then he's going to fix all your problems. And he's going to give you the things that you want. That's the way their cause and effect mind works. If he loves you, he'll do all these things. But we say, no, God is not a genie at our beck and call. He's a loving father who at times decides it's best for us not to be spared from trials and suffering. We need that in our lives to grow, don't we? Friends, if we measure God's love for us solely based on how much health and wealth and comfort that he brings into our lives, we would have to conclude as we look at our Bibles that God didn't love Paul, and he didn't love Peter, and he didn't love any of the saints that we read about in the Bible because they didn't enjoy a lot of health and wealth and comfort, and they went through many, many hardships. So the Bible helps us to understand that this is true. And again, when our emotions are spinning and we're in the midst of that trial and that grief, We've got to open up the Bible and find that anchor for our souls, right? Jesus loves us most by showing us more of himself, even if it results in temporary affliction on our end. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Good. <laughs> Good. I mean, let's, that's, that's the groundwork for everything we're going to talk about today. Now, let me share with you where we're headed this morning. I there are times when people, and I've had somebody ask me this question recently, how do you, how do you figure out how to preach through a, a, a narrative like this story in John 11? And my answer is always very carefully, <laughs> because you can make a lot of mistakes in this, right? And some sections of a narrative like this are easier, some are more difficult, and today's section is definitely on the hard side. It's on the difficult side, and for a number of reasons. Number one, there's a whole bunch of dialogue in this particular part of the story where it's not easy to dig deep and to establish the intent of what's, what's uh, motivating the words that we read. It, it looks kind of flat on the page, so it requires a little bit of speculation based on the context of what was going through the minds of these characters in this story. Second, we're going to see in the story real human beings doing what real human beings do. By the way, is anybody else encouraged by that? That the people in these biblical stories don't act in ways that are so perfect that we go, I can never live up to that. No, they act like real people. They act like you and I. So we're going to see them not always understanding. 
We're going to see them acting out of selfish motivation. We're going to see them lacking faith. So what I want you to look for as we go through this part of the story is how much you and I are like them. How we're actually like the disciples as a group. How we're somewhat like Thomas in the way he processes through this. And most of all today, how much we are all Martha (laughs) to some extent. And by the way, that's okay. Jesus loved them all. And there's grace for that, right? But we can also look at the story and learn from their mistakes and say, okay, this story was given to us for our edification, so let's learn and grow from this so that we don't fall into some of those same mistakes. Amen? Okay, let's pick up the narrative in the middle of verse 11. Jesus says to his disciples, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him or unsleep him is basically what it says in the Greek. I can unsleep him, awake him out of his sleep. Now remember, the disciples were extremely concerned about Jesus going back to Judea at this point, right? Because they know the religious establishment is out to kill him. And so the disciples say to Jesus, bro, actually I didn't say bro, I shouldn't. (laughs) They would not have done that, right? Jesus Going to Judea right now is crazy. You know what's going to happen. You're going to run into a mob. You're going to get yourself arrested, and that'll be the end of you. Remember what Jesus' response was in effect? Guys, relax. That is not going to happen. And he talked about it. He said, there's 12 hours in a day, and I'm going to walk in the light of that day according to my Father's will. He is sovereign over everything, including the days of my life. He has a plan in place, so there is no reason to be fearful. I have a divine appointment. I'm going to Bethany. Pack up your stuff and let's go. But look in verse 12, how the disciples now seize on this idea of Lazarus being, quote, just asleep. Verse 12, the disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. Now, consider for a second how common it was at this time that people understood death as sleep. Especially as a, as a Jew, you would look back to the very famous statement that the, the prophet Daniel used when he described this coming day of judgment and resurrection, and he talked about sleeping in the grave. Here's what he says in Daniel 12. It says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake on that day, some to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. I guarantee you these disciples knew that Daniel referred to death as sleep. We also know that Jesus himself had used that term, sleep. Remember in describing Jairus' daughter who had physically died? He said she's asleep. And we know that Paul was very familiar with it. He uses it famously in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4. So the question is, if this was common knowledge that sleep and death were synonymous, why are the disciples confused here? Okay, here's where we find ourselves uh, in this particular story. (laughs) We're guilty of doing this all the time. In our hearts, we understand what's being said in scripture, but because we don't like it, we parse the language to try to make it say something else. We do this a lot when we come to the text of scripture. I see what it says. I don't really like it. Maybe there's a way I can twist and move that to fit my fleshly desires. Hmm. In the case of the disciples, because they're afraid to go to Judea, they try to parse Jesus's words. Oh, sleep, you say? Oh, okay. Well, then he's just sick. He'll get better. You know what? In fact, he should. So we should let him sleep. (laughs) That way we don't have to go to Judea and risk our necks. That's basically what's going on here. They're interpreting the master's words in a way that's agreeable to their flesh, to what they want. 
Be careful of looking at Scripture and trying to manipulate it to fit your own desires. So then Jesus has to be very clear with them in verse 14. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Hey, guys, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there. Now, we covered that last week, right? Go back and if you, if you missed it, go back and listen on our YouTube page. That is the key verse that explains the motivation that Jesus had, right? In delaying going to Bethany. He says, I was glad for your sakes that I was not there, right? That I didn't save Lazarus from dying. And he says, so that, when you see so that in scripture, it's a purpose statement, so that you may believe. I shared last Sunday, that doesn't mean first-time belief. That means so that you will go deeper in your trust in me. That's why Jesus is glad he wasn't there, because he wants these disciples to go deeper in their trust of him. He says, but let us go to him. Verse 16, therefore Thomas, who was called Didymus, or the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. How many of you guys are shocked by that statement? That's a pretty strong statement from Thomas, right? You might expect Peter to say that. In fact, a lot of people say that Peter must not have been there <laughs> because Thomas, Thomas basically speaks for the group. So I promised last week that I would try to, try to deal with this. This is what I meant by sometimes it's hard when you read the flat text of Scripture. What's the intent going on behind these words? So setting aside his reputation as doubting Thomas, which... In my opinion, we've sort of unfairly laid on this poor guy for 2,000 years. What do we make of the statement? And it's interesting, good, solid commentators disagree on this. Again, because the, the text doesn't give us a lot of flavor to go with here. Was he acting as a courageous hero, willing to be martyred for the faith? Or had he fallen into a despairing, deterministic mindset like Eeyore, right? Where he's just like, okay, we're all going to die. What was the name? Schlepprock, right? I mean, oh, I just dated myself. Schlepprock, we're all going to die. Like four people in here got that. You know what? I, I choose not to pick one or the other. I, I don't think this is a black or white issue. My experiences with human beings is that we don't act out of one pure motivation or another. It's almost always a mixed bag of emotions and motivations. So I think that's true here as well. I think we can, both, we can both criticize Thomas for his attitude and commend him all at the same time because it's a mixed bag. On the one hand, you definitely hear in his words a sense of resignation, right? A pessimistic mindset. We're going and we're all going to die, right? It, it shows a fundamental lack of, of trust in, in Jesus that he's really in control of what's about to happen. But at the same time, you've got to admire the fact that he is, I mean, he's willing to walk straight into the fire and probably die a horrible death. So good job, Thomas, right? And, and, and because of this weird mix of motivations here, scholars have, have dubbed this, and I'll give you two quotes, Thomas's cry of loyal despair. Try, try to put that together in your mind. His cry of loyal despair, or Thomas's statement of courageous unbelief. I think it's a mixed bag. So, like it or not, we are all like the disciples in general, and you know what? We're sort of like Thomas as well. We can vacillate back and forth between courage and, and doubt and all these different things. So we see ourselves, right? We're a mixed bag of both fear and faith. Look at verse 17. So when Jesus came, or when he arrived, 
he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. So without modern-day embalming techniques, we know what is going on here, right? His body is beginning to decompose at this point. So this is important. In the eyes of the family and in the eyes of the whole community, this is now beyond human hope. And that's exactly Jesus' plan, right? This is why he delayed so that... Remember I talked about how, how there was this Jewish superstition that for three days the Spirit hovered over the grave to see if he could pop back into the body? But after four days, ooh, hmm, it's not going to happen. And the Spirit departs. Now, Jesus didn't believe that, but that was a common superstition. So we have four days in the tomb. Everybody at this point knows there's no going back. This is beyond hope. That is God's plan. Verse 18, now Bethany was near Jerusalem about, about two miles off. Okay, why add that little detail? Is that just for map lovers like us? Yes? No, just no, it's not. Now again, map on the screen. Oh, man, I know. What are you going to do? But you've seen the map. I've had it a couple times, right? Just two miles away. I think what John is doing here is reminding the reader that this miracle that's about to happen is like almost within shouting distance from Jerusalem. It's happening right under the nose of the religious establishment, the people that want to kill Jesus. He's reminding us of that fact. Verse 19, And many of the Jews had come to Mary and, to Martha and Mary to console or to comfort them concerning their brother. So here's another important historical anecdote that tells us something. It's been four days since Lazarus died, but there is still a large number of mourners hanging around. They probably came some from Jerusalem, obviously many from Bethany and from surrounding villages. This tells us that this family was probably well-known and, and, and prominent and loved. And obviously God has a plan in this. What he wants to do is create this large number of eyewitnesses who are going to see this miracle that's about to happen. So there's a whole bunch of people. Now, maybe you can picture what this scene looks like. If you've ever been to a large funeral or, or a well-attended wake, you can sort of picture this in your mind's eye. You have people wandering all over the place and every person is processing through, through death and processing through the various stages of grief. They're, they're all feeling some measure of loss. They're all attempting to find the right words to console one another. Probably the house there is full of friends. People have brought food, like we always bring food. That's what God's people do, right? We bring food so that the sisters don't have to prepare uh, you know, meals for everybody. So some people are standing, others are sitting, some are inside, some are outside, and likely they're reminiscing about Lazarus, about the way he had impacted their lives. I'm guessing that on occasion, throughout these four days, Mary and Martha probably slipped away to the tomb to pray, to, to try to get a sense of that closeness that we all want to have when somebody passes away. So John isn't sugarcoating the situation here. This is important to know. This is the ordinary, universal experience of dying and death. doesn't matter if you die in the first century or in the 21st century. This is sort of what it looks like. But then he highlights and put, puts the spotlight on Martha. Look at verse 20. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. All right, so what do we know about Martha? She's, one, oh, she's wonderful. I like that. That was my wife. What we know of Martha comes from this story and also from uh, Luke's gospel. We know that she's impulsive, right? 
We know that she is a woman of action. She is strong. She is demonstrative. Today we say this is a get-her-done woman, right? She's not concerned about protocol in this moment. Some, some ladies would have said, I can't leave the house. There's all these guests. But Mar- Martha's like, Jesus is coming, and she's up and she's racing out, out to meet him. So she's not really concerned about protocol. She leaves and she rushes out to meet him. Mary, on the other hand, is the complete opposite, right? She's quiet. She's meek and she's gentle. She's reflective in her reactions to spiritual matters. It's interesting, the NASB translates this part of the verse, Mary stayed at the house, but the Greek verb here, kathedzomai, literally means to sit down. So Mary was sitting, and the contrast that John is, is drawing is very, very stark. Martha gets up and rushes out. Mary stays in her seat. She stays quiet. And the ancients... They believed that that was the posture for grief and mourning, right? That's what we, we even see in, in, in Job chapter 2, when Job's friends see all that he's gone through and he's, his health, he's fallen apart. What do they do? It says they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights because that was the accepted posture of grief and mourning, sitting. So as I say that, though, I, I think it's important to say I'm not preferring Mary to Martha, in this story. Now, I, I would have to if we were going through Luke 10, because Jesus draws a judgment there, doesn't he? He says, Hey, Martha, you're busy with too many things. Mary's doing the right thing. She's staying quiet at my feet. So I'd have to say that. But here in John 11, we don't read anything like that. And so for, I'll be honest with you I'm married to a strong woman. And I love that, right? And, and, and I think Martha here gets a bad rap in the way she carries herself. People respond to grief and loss in different ways. And I think there's a time to be still and quiet, but I think there's also a time to be passionate and to take action. So I wouldn't prefer one over the other here. And I think it's important to remember that the body of Christ is made up with all kinds of people. Aren't you glad there's diversity in our personalities and our temperaments? The body of Christ needs both Marys and Marthas. Both play an important role in the life of the church. Amen? Okay, that was for my wife. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Let's see why Martha was so quick to jump up and go out to Jesus. Verse 21. Okay, so can you picture this scene? Jesus hasn't even really gotten to the the boundaries of this village of Bethany, and Martha is, boom, she's right there. (laughs) Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Okay, so again, this is one of those things where we're like, what's behind that statement, right? And again, really good, solid commentators disagree on what's going on. Is Martha upset with Jesus here? I mean, is, is this her sort of backhanded way of lodging a complaint against him? Or is she simply expressing faith in the fact that, that Jesus has the power to heal and the power to prevent death? Once again, I'm stuck with my theory of why not both, <laughs> right? Why not both? She's a mixed bag here. I don't think there's any question that Martha has gone through a ton of things here over the last four days. Again, put yourself in her sandals. The suffering that she has gone through must have been weighty. And add to that the frustration of why didn't Jesus respond? So she's gone through a lot. She's probably frustrated. So some people say, and I like the the image of this, that when she meets Jesus and says this, she has her hands on her hips. Where you been? You know, if you'd been here, like, like sort of a scolding mom, right? If you'd just been here, Jesus, no, this wouldn't have happened. We wouldn't all be crying right now. 
I think it's possible, and again, I know that I'm speculating here. I'm sort of I'm looking into the situation. Just consider the question. Is it possible that this family had this very tight relationship with Jesus? They knew the power that he had. Did they even assume that, hey, we, we know the master? And they feel like they have an insurance pro plan against suffering. But then it didn't pan out that way. So if they were thinking that, if they were like, but look, I've got an inside track to blessing, and right? If they were mm, leaning into that prosperity thing and then it didn't pan out, that would only heighten their frustration here, right? Again, I know I'm speculating, but it's interesting to think of. By the way, two more times in the story, people are going to say, if only Jesus had been here. So that must have been the prevailing emotion in the family, and the mourners are going to say it later on. If only he'd been here, we wouldn't be dealing with this guy in the tomb for four days. So it's very interesting to look at and try to figure out what was swirling around at this time. As we've been talking about over the past two Sundays, from the perspective of these human beings, these normal people, Mary and Martha, what was going on didn't appear to be love. We know it was because John tells us it was out of love, but they would not have seen it that way in the moment. So again, we've got to put ourselves in the story. Now, let's give Martha some credit here too in verse 21. She does reveal her faith in the power of Jesus to heal and to save. Yet again, I think it's, a, it's still a faith that is mixed with some measure of unbelief. Think about this. And I mentioned this last Sunday. Martha must have known that Jesus could have healed Lazarus from a distance. He had done this before up in Capernaum, right? But he chose not to in this case. So we see in Martha this strange mingling of both natural thoughts and spiritual thoughts, of faith and unbelief, of having confidence in Jesus but limiting his power. And maybe we should just cut her some slack. I mean, she's in the midst of grieving. And so if you've ever been in this place where you've lost a loved one, you're bouncing between hope and despair. It's a tough thing. So we should just cut her some slack and not judge her too harshly, lest we judge ourselves. True? But then look at her next statement in verse 22. Even now I know, Jesus, that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Wow. So she's disappointed, maybe hurting a little bit, but she still believes. Does she understand everything that Jesus is doing? No. But she still trusts in the fact that he has this very unique relationship with Yahweh, who's the God of Israel, right? The God of her fathers. And she's seen this, right? She's holding on to a sense of assurance that God specifically listens to Jesus' prayer. Now, by saying that, here's another question. Is she asking Jesus to do something? Is, this a, is there a subtle, well, I know, Jesus, if you ask. Is she expecting something here? Some, again, commentators disagree. Some say, yes, she believed that even in that moment, Jesus could ask God and Lazarus would come out of that grave. I think that's too optimistic. I don't think that's realistic for the context of the moment. In fact, later on, when Jesus says, roll the stone away, it's Martha who goes, hey, are you sure you want to do that? It's been four days. So I don't think resurrection is on her mind right in this moment. I think she's, I'll just apply Occam's razor to this. I think she's simply looking for divine consolation in this moment. She knows that that Yahweh is the God of all comfort. She's confident that Jesus will ask the Father to pour out his surpassing peace and comfort on this family in the midst of this loss. Martha seems to have a sense that now that Jesus is there, he's arrived, 
everything is somehow going to work out okay. She's not sure how, but she does know Jesus has this special relationship with Yahweh, and then therefore they'll have peace and consolation over the next few days. I think that's the simplest answer of what's going on here. Does that make sense? Again, I told you earlier on, you've got to speculate a lot in this story because we don't have a lot of insight from John on the motivations behind it all. Here's, I'll give you a summary from somebody much smarter than me, from J.C. Ryle. He says this about this text. He says, What a strange mixture of grace and weakness is to be found, even in the hearts of true believers. Martha's dim eyes and trembling hands could not grasp the grand truth that he who stood before her had the keys of life and death, and that in her master dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead. Right? She couldn't have known that. He goes on, She saw through a glass darkly. She knew, but only in part. Yet both Mary and Martha were genuine children of God and true Christians. They were sinners, renewed, changed, sanctified, no doubt, yet still sinners, their faith entangled with much unbelief. That's us. Don't we find ourselves in that same, same description to some extent, to some measure where we're like striving to believe with all of our hearts and yet there's also these doubts and these things that creep in at times and we, we strive and we grow, right? We're being sanctified over time. But we're very much like Martha in this particular situation. Okay, so she's a little bit confused, possibly upset. How's Jesus now going to respond to this? Look at verse 23. Jesus said to her, don't you love how Jesus is just the master of the short sentence? Your brother will rise again. Notice what he doesn't do here. Jesus doesn't say, well, now that I'm here, Martha, I'm glad you feel better. Because Jesus didn't come just to make us feel better, right? For him, what's most important in this moment was not Martha's feelings, but what she believed about life and death and about eternity. What did she believe about it? This is a good lesson for us. These are the things that are particularly important in times of grief. When our feelings and emotions rise up, this is where we need that anchor of truth to fall back upon. What do you believe? Not just what you feel, but what do you believe about life and about death? So Jesus makes this very plain statement. Believe this, Martha. Lazarus will rise again. Now she misunderstands him, doesn't she? How many of you guys think you would have done better in that moment? I think we all would have misunderstood. She's seen the power that Jesus has, yet still after four days, I can't imagine that she thought, oh, well, now I know what's going to happen. I don't think she does. But good for Martha. Again, this is the fluctuation of, of, of where her heart is at. She now leans into her theology. Verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She goes all the way to eschatology, which is fascinating, isn't it? By, by the way, thanks to the Pharisees, she believed in this. The Sadducees back in the, that day did not teach the resurrection, but the Pharisees did. They had a right understanding that, that the poetry, the wisdom literature, the prophets all speak in the Hebrew uh, Old Testament all speak of resurrection in the end. Now, her understanding was no doubt limited in scope as it would have been for any Jew living at that time. There's a whole range of expectations, by the way, about resurrection taught by the rabbis in that day. Was it just Jews who got resurrected? That was the prevailing thought among 
the Jewish population, just ethnic Jews would be resurrected. Some said, no, not just Jews, but only the righteous Jews. Well, how do you define righteous? Well, God does. Some people, rabbis back in that day said, only Jews who live in the land would be resurrected. But whatever Martha's specific view of resurrection is, she's including her brother in it, right? Good for her. But here's the thing. Here's the thing about eschatological beliefs. They're really far off. Have you noticed that? And because of that, sometimes they don't provide the type of comfort that we need in the middle of grief and loss. It's like you go to a Christian funeral and you want to encourage somebody, so you say what? You say, well, someday you'll be reunited in heaven. True, but how much does that actually help me right now? in the here and now, because what my flesh wants in that moment, no, I want to see that person right now. I don't want to wait. And so sometimes it lacks the type of comfort that you want to have in this moment. But Martha's mind is set on the end of the age. And it's so ironic, right? God the Son is standing right in front of her. Don't forget that. She's thinking far off, but God the Son is right there. She knows that he's done great miracles in the past. She's just not thinking in those terms. It's, it's been said that general faith is easier to have than particular faith, right? We can have general faith in these big themes, but what about particular faith? Once again, Martha's very much like you and I. In our doubts, we have a tendency, guys, to say, okay, look, I know God has worked in the past, right? I read my Bible, and I see these heroes of the faith, and I'm amazed how God has worked in their lives. And we say, I know that God's going to work in the future. I see all the promises of God in Scripture, so he's going to do great things there in, in, in the future as well. But what about today? Do we have particular faith that God is still working today in our lives? See, that's what Martha's missing right at this moment. She's thinking long term. Jesus is standing right there. We tend to doubt that in the moment, right now, God is at work in my life. We're just like her. There are times when our theology is accurate, but our personal faith in the reality of God's divine power is weaker than it should be. And here comes the bombshell response now from God. Verse 25. Jesus said to her, again, the master of the short sentence, I am the resurrection and the life. I am, he says. I am the resurrection and the life. He doesn't just have these things. He embodies them. The language is really important here. In my being, he says, I am the source of all resurrection. In my being, I am the source of all life. Apart from me, there is neither one. What a statement. I mean, how, do you, how can you possibly look at this and go, oh, Jesus wasn't claiming to be God? That's silliness, isn't it? Martha, you're thinking far off, but I'm right here, right now, standing in front of you. I'm the cause of resurrection. I'm the conqueror of death. I'm the savior of the body. Whatever life anybody has, physical, spiritual, eternal, it comes from me. This is, these are wild claims, right? All that are raised from the grave will be raised by me. All that are granted eternal life will have that life through me and me alone. Martha, Martha, I am the object of your resurrection hope for your brother, and I'm standing right in front of you. What a moment How, to be a fly on that wall, right? To hear this, this conversation. See, Martha had thought, and this is, again, we can fall into this trap. Resurrection is an event. Jesus says, no, it's a person. It's embodied in me. It's not just an event. 
We don't put our faith in future events. We put our faith in the person who controls those events, right? So we got to get this right. Now go back to verse 25. Jesus continues to unpack who he is. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Friends, this was the comfort Martha was looking for right here. Listen to Jesus reassures her with these words. First for her brother. He meets that need for her. He's so gracious to her. Whoever puts his trust in me will live on forever, even if we see him die physically, which you've just done with your brother. What comfort. But for you, Martha, you're physically alive right now as I stand here, but there's coming a time when you will follow your brother into physical death. But because you've trusted me, you too will live on forever. There will never be a millisecond of time when you are out of saving fellowship with me. So death, where's your victory? Right? Death, where's your sting? Death has been defanged through Jesus. Wow. What, I mean, what comfort he gives Martha in this moment. Again, Martha's mind is everywhere. She's eschatological, and he says, no, let me tell you right now what's going on. First with your brother, and now with you. The great D.L. Moody once said, and you may have heard this quote, it's, it's a favorite of mine. He stood up in church on a Sunday, and he said, one day you will hear that D.L. Moody of Northfield, Massachusetts is dead. Don't you believe it? In that day, I will be more alive than I've ever been before. Man, tattoo that on your wall somewhere. <laughs> Not on your body. <laughs> it's too long. It's too long. That's such a great statement. That's such a great statement. Don't you believe it? I'm more alive than ever. That, that's, that is Jesus condescending with grace and with mercy to meet the need that Martha had in that moment for that consolation. So beautiful. But friends, don't miss the condition there. That There is a promise, but Jesus does lay a condition, right? He who believes in me. He who believes in me. He who trusts in me alone. Not somebody, you know, not trusting in a, in a prayer you said many years ago, one time. Don't trust in that. Not in, in, in all the good works that you think you have lined up in your life. Not in church attendance or anything else that we feel like in our own strength we brought to God as an offering and said, see God, aren't you impressed? That's not going to do it. He says, no. He who believes in me, period. Period. That is the one and only test that's going to be applied to, to you and to I when we all come face to face with God someday. Do you believe this? Jesus asked Martha in her time of grief. Do you believe these specific truths about me? Now this is where the rubber meets the road, right? For every single human being, what do you believe about Jesus? Who is he? Do you believe these things? Or are you trusting in something else? There is not another thing that any human being should be focusing on before that one what are you trusting we don't want to talk about death we don't want to talk about the afterlife but you better talk about this question and you better have the right answer because there's a test who do you say jesus is verse 27 look what martha says man she's fluctuating now she's back to this brilliant statement of faith 
She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. What a statement of faith. Guys, I think this is fuller and more complete than even Peter's famous statement in Matthew 16. And from a woman. (laughs) Right? I mean, what an encouraging thing to see. The gospel writers continuously point us not to just great men of the faith, but to great women of the faith, right? Now, that doesn't negate the divine order or male headship in the home and the church, but how encouraging is it? Time and time again, the gospel writers point us back to women of faith and show, yeah, everybody's equal at the foot of the cross. Everybody's loved equally by our Savior. I I love that. But look what Martha affirms here. First, that this man, imagine, this man standing in front of me is the Christ, or in in the Jewish context, the Messiah. He is the one the prophets talked about that would come into the world, she says and the Son of God. What? what? What does that mean? In that context, what does she mean, the Son of God? By the way, this is the fourth time somebody close to Jesus has called Him the Son of God. John the Baptist, remember? Nathaniel, right? And then Peter. And now Martha. What did they know at that time? How much? Obviously, they didn't know the, you know, we don't, they didn't have the complete understanding of Trinitarian doctrine, but what they did see and hear was that Jesus had this unique relationship with God that was undeniable, that nobody had ever seen before, this oneness, this intimacy that existed between him and the Father. Jesus talked about it constantly, didn't he? We've seen it over and over again in John's Gospel. This oneness, this un- Nobody else spoke to God like Jesus did. Nobody prayed to God the way Jesus did. They recognized that somehow, and again, they don't fully understand, but somehow Jesus was one with Yahweh. And because of that, life was found in him. That's what they mean by the Son of God. Amazing. By the way, isn't it great that that we can look back over 2,000 years of scholarship and define that a little bit more carefully and understand the Trinity? They didn't have that in that moment. But Martha gives us everything that she possibly can. Now, in her grief, there's no way she could systematically lay out all that Jesus was claiming about himself. But she affirms what she knows in that moment. That is an important lesson. Again, in times of grief and overwhelming trials, come back to what you know is certain. Come back to what you know is true, that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God, that He did voluntarily take on flesh, that He did die in your place for forgiveness of sins, that He was raised in victory from the dead. Friends, if we camp on those truths... In the middle of the world, can throw anything it wants to at you if you will camp on those truths and refuse to budge. That's what Martha does here. She comes back to what she knows is true about Jesus. Listen to how uh, the late scholar Alan Redpath processed this in his mind. I would love to have this on the screen so that you could follow along, but I'll read it slowly. But listen to how he processes this because I love this. He says, There is nothing. No circumstance, no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me until, first of all, it's gone past God and past Christ right through to me. And if it has come that far, it has come with a great purpose, which I may not understand at the moment. But as I refuse to become panicky, (laughs) as I lift up my eyes to Him, and as I accept it as coming from the throne of God for some great purpose, a blessing to my heart, No sorrow will ever disturb me. No trial will ever disarm me. No circumstance will cause me to fret, for I shall rest in the joy of who my Lord is. 
Man. If we could just adopt that in our lives, right? When things get rough. All right, two Sundays from now, we're going to finish this story. Next week, I hear is a big Sunday. We'll finish this story, and we're going to go to the tomb where Lazarus is, dead four days. And one of the beautiful pictures we're going to see, and this will be just a tease for you, is how the raising of Lazarus serves as a representative miracle of what happens every single time that God grabs hold of a dead sinner and makes him alive in Christ. So not only are we like the disciples and like Thomas and like Martha, but we're also a little bit like Lazarus. So that's for then. The brief time I have left, I want to close with this concept because we often pass right over. If you go back to verse 11, where Jesus talks about Lazarus falling asleep, I just want to close with this because to me, this is one of the most comforting truths of all of Scripture. We can pass over it, but it's really important. Think about this. The idea that Christ has transformed death, which is this great enemy of all humanity, he's transformed it into just falling asleep. How cool is that? Raise your hand if you're afraid of falling asleep. You're not. (laughs) I know I'm tired all the time, right? Nobody's afraid of falling asleep. There's nothing to fear in sleep. Actually, there's much to be thankful for in sleep. We know when we get that 10, 11 hours, we're like, I'm thankful. Does that ever happen? But consider how God has designed sleep for your mortal body. Why did God give us this thing called sleep and say we need it? If there's not a spiritual parallel that we can go, oh, interesting, this translates some way to what happens after I die. First thing, know that sleep was designed by God to come as a welcome relief after the sorrows of the day. Right? And for the believer, death is similar. It's a relief. It's a rest from all the things that this depraved world throws at us, right? It's a rest from sin. It's a rest from suffering and from violence and from injustice. All of these things that we say, I don't understand, Lord. Sleep is a provision of mercy from the hand of God. So is death for the believer. Again, we don't often think that way. We're trying to preserve our life as much as we possibly can, but it's a mercy from God. Relief from the the sorrows and toils of the day. Secondly, sleep shuts out those sorrows of life. Have you noticed this? When you fall asleep at night, you can't worry about what's going on in the world. You're You're just sawing logs. And you wake up in the morning, you're like, oh, that happened while I was sleeping? Well, death is the same way to some extent, right? For the believer, we go to heaven with, how much are you going to care about what's going on on earth when you're in the presence of the Lord? You're not. You're not. It shuts out the sorrows of life on the earth. Third, in sleep we lie down for this purpose, to rise again. Right? That's why you rest. That's why you go to sleep at night, so that you can rise to face the next day. Well, in death, we do that as well. We sleep in the blink of an eye, and then we're awakened to a a whole new and glorious phase of life. We sleep in order to rise to something better. And last, sleep is the time when our bodies are refreshed for all the things that we have to do the next day. And that's exactly what happens in death. On the great day of resurrection, our bodies will be transformed, will be raised in power. Our bodies will be designed and fit 
for the next phase of eternity, right? This idea of the new heaven and the new earth to enjoy all the wondrous things that await us. So we sleep in order to be refreshed for what's coming in the next phase. Tonight when you go to sleep, I want you to think about that. To be thankful for it, to see it as a grace from God, a mercy from God, and to say, someday I'm going to sleep and I'm going to wake up in His presence. Do you believe these things? That's what, that's what Jesus asked Martha. That's what I'm asking you this morning. Do you believe that you will live even though you die? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? That answer means everything. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, thank you for this amazing example that you have left for us to dig in and study and, and God, to see to see how we can all fall into the sort of this mingling of faith and unbelief and, and being certain of things and not so sure at times. God, thank you for your mercy for your children. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for, for I'll just say it, putting up with us at times, God, when we are weak. We know that you love us. We know that we are your children if we've trusted in you. So we are just a grateful people here this morning. And we look forward to that day. As scary as death may seem to us, God, as believers, strengthen us for that day that we might anticipate it with joy that we can lie down only to be in your presence. God, change the way we think about life and death and the afterlife. Teach us to number our days, Lord, in the days that you've given us on this earth and help us to joyfully look forward to seeing you face to face. Thank you for this story, God. Be present now in our worship as we sing to your glory. We pray in your name. Amen.